Well, what a beautiful song. I couldn't think of a better way to tie in some themes that we have been hearing about this morning. And I know our student ministry has been hearing about, hearing about this summer. Uh, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Why are we talking about death? Because nobody else is. Why are we talking about sin? Because no one else is. But God does. And he actually says there's benefit and value to talking about sin and talking about death in the right way. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful song to sing and to show that we can, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Go ahead, talk straight to death. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's victory. There's victory over sin, over death. It's in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory. Who cries out victory except for someone who has gone to war, right? Not just thumb wars, but (laughs) wars for life. And who cries out victory but the one who has won, not who has been defeated? And who cries out victory but the one who is sure that the battle is over and not still to be played out? So I think the the problem, or a big problem today, when we think about sin and death, is that too many of us are looking for victory in the wrong places. We're looking at the battles being not the same battles that God talks about as being the most devastating. We do not see sin as the greatest threat to our lives. We see other things, and those things become the big deals. And so then we become a victim, and there are other oppressors, and there are other salvations, but it's not from sin. And it's not in a Savior that's alone Jesus, who is our Lord. And so we've gotten used to talking about all kinds of other ways of being set free, liberated, and victorious over other things. And God's calling us back to look death in the face and to say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Victory is in Christ Jesus. Jerry Bridges, in his book on the respectable respectable sins, um, has uh, addressed this in some extent uh, early on. He said, we present-day believers have, to some extent, been influenced by the feel-good-about-myself philosophy of our times. By contrast, believers in the Puritan era of the 17th century had a different view of themselves. They feared the reality of sin still dwelling in them. Talking about believers still having that indwelling sin nature. He goes on to say, I have in my library four books on sin by pastors of that era. Here are their titles, The Sinfulness of Sin, The Mischief of Sin, The Anatomy of Secret Sins, The Evil of Evils, or The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. These pastors all saw sin for what it actually is, a diabolical force within us. Ralph Venning, the author of The Sinfulness of Sin, uses especially, especially colorful, in the negative sense, uh, words to describe sin. 
Over the space of only a few pages, he says that sin is, listen, vile, ugly, odious, malignant, pestilent, pernicious, hideous, spiteful, poisonous, virulent, villainous, abominable, and deadly. Uh, these, are, these are words that we would rarely even maybe think to refer to our sin as, and we, and we rarely hear people talking that way about sin with terms as strong as these. Were they wrong? Were they imbalanced? Were the Puritans a little bit off? Were they overreacting to something before them? Were they grasping for something that was not the, the right thing for them to grasp? Were they too hard on themselves? Were they too hard on others? Did they misunderstand what the Bible says about our sin? I don't think so. I don't think so. So what would it take for us to be able to get to that place where we see our sin as despicable as it really is? How can we get to the place where we start to look at even our most respectable sins the sins that we would call petty or small or insignificant in our life as actual rebellion against God, personal offenses against him, and us setting ourselves up as an enemy with a rival kingdom agenda. Well, there's a big idea here as we're kind of closing out this series on the sinfulness of sin and understanding sin for what it truly is. This big idea that I've been capturing and I've been sharing with our students and wanting them, appealing to them to grasp and get a hold of is this. To the degree that we downplay the sinfulness of our sin, there will be a corresponding downplaying of the salvation of our Savior. So track with me with that big thought. If you look at your sin as not that big of a deal, you will look at your Savior also as not that big of a deal. And so there's a lot at stake here. If we avoid the topic of sin and we find it prickly and uncomfortable and we try to figure out other ways to refer to it as we all make mistakes, we all have had accidents, uh, and we can go on talking about these other words that, well, that's, that's more palatable. I can listen to that. Thank you for tickling my ears. You have to understand the correlation of what's happening. You are also at the same time looking at Jesus and making him in your own image. You're looking at God and bringing him down to where you are at because you are just elevating yourself out of where we are needing to see ourselves at in our sin, apart from Christ, apart from redemption, apart from forgiveness. And really the converse is true. Flip it around. To the degree that you see your sin for what it truly is, a cosmic treason committed against a holy, holy, holy God resulting in this physical, spiritual, eternal death to that same degree that you see your sin for what it truly is, you will also see the salvation of your Savior. And if you hate your sin with a holy hatred, you will begin to love your Savior with a holy love. It's true. It's true, and you can attest to this in your own lives, and you can see it all around us, and this is a battle worth being fought. And that's why three weeks ago, we looked at 
uh, the very beginning, uh, when I was up here, the penalty of sin from Genesis 3, um, and we can pull up, uh, just this is review here, but we talked about the penalty of our sin from Genesis 3, no better text in the scriptures to turn to uh, than this, talking about sin 1, where our, the satanic origin of sin, the innate nature of sin, and the noticeable effects of sin. We looked how Jesus saves us from our penalty of, of sin, bringing in eternal life where death has entered into humanity. Two weeks ago, we examined the power of indwelling sin from Colossians 3, uh, the power of sin, and what Jesus has done to not only save us from the penalty of our sin, but also broke the power of sin in our life. Even that sin that still dwells in those who are believers, if Jesus is there with his power, God is there working powerfully in us, the power of sin stands no chance with him there as well. And so when we are presented with an opportunity to sin, we also have a Savior beckoning us to say no to it and to choose otherwise and to see the bitterness of the bite on this side and to see the sweet taste that God has for us instead. So Colossians 3 helped us learn how to fight our sin as believers and see that that power is no longer the supreme power in our lives. Sin once did have a power, but now there is a new ruler in our life. No longer are we enslaved, addicted to sin. We are enslaved to Christ, <laughs> addicted in a way to his will, wanting only to do his will and learning how to do that better and better. The Holy Spirit working to make that possible. This morning, we complete our study of the sinfulness of sin and the salvation of our Savior by turning to the presence of sin in 1 John chapter 3. I would ask for you to turn there with me. 1 John chapter 3. We're looking at just uh, two small verses, and I'm going to be moving quickly this morning. Um, but uh, there is also just a summary slide here uh, that helps us kind of capture what we've been talking about and what I hope you guys will be able to lock in, because this will help you as a Christian know how to make your way through your fight against sin and your hope. Sometimes we just need perspective. That's what this morning is going to be. So the penalty of sin was paid off at the cross was a transaction. There was redemption. There was a, a, a ransom price paid there. And, and by faith in that alone, his work at the cross is our justification when we are justified, rescued, and, realize, and, and recognized as righteous in God's eyes because of the work of Christ, the snake crusher, Eve's descendant that would come to save us from the curse. Then the power of sin is, this is in present tense, not past tense. The power of sin is prevailed over in the present in our sanctification. This is a long process. Justification is a moment at time when you are saved at your conversion, when you give up controlling your own life and trying to save yourself and you let Christ be the rescuer savior of your life. Sanctification is, an, is a process that begins at that point of your justification and goes to your last day. And that's what this final piece is about. The presence of sin. Sin is still present. You don't have to illustrate that for me this morning. I know. I see it in me, not in you. Uh, but the presence of sin will be, this is future, okay, put away in the future through our glorification. These are big words, but they're words that you need to understand. You need to be able to see and go, these are different. The Bible talks about the defeat of sin in this way. So the penalty of sin, gone. Power of sin, gone. One day, the presence of sin, also gone. 
So we're going to talk primarily about our glorification. And when I use that word, our glorification, understand what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we're taking glory from God. I'm also not saying that we are somehow intrinsically worth something that God is also worth. I'm not saying that we deserve glory. What I am saying is that God in his mercy, in his grace, has this plan for us to be sons, daughters, and heirs of all that is his sons. And in Christ, we can come into this reflected, shared, borrowed glory that is not our own. It's sourced in him, like the light that shines off the moon. The moon at, light, at, at night sometimes casts a light on the earth, and we can walk better because of the moon's light. But it's not the moon's light. It's the sun's light off the moon. And in that same way, our glorification is something that we look for, like we look into the sky at that full moon and go, wow, that's bright. And it's dark around. But the only light, source of light that is there is the glory of God. So our glorification involves our future aspect of salvation, being set free from sin entirely. Now, as we kind of make our way toward this text, I want you to just think very practically. This is the last thing I'll say before we read. Uh, But before we read our passage, I want you to think about some of those sin struggles that still continue in your life. Some of you are very reminded of these very often. Some of these, some of you are kind of like, well, I, I know I'm a sinner still, and I know I've been saved. I don't see my sin very accurately. I need help. And And uh, let me just throw a few out there for you. Maybe for you it is lustful looks and thoughts and desires in the area of sexual sin. Maybe it's the critical thoughts that you have toward others, those people who do things differently than you, not in the same way you would. Maybe it's impatience with people who make your life just a little bit more difficult than you would like. Maybe it's prideful thoughts about your accomplishments or your abilities. Maybe it's prideful thoughts about your lack of accomplishments or your lack of abilities. Maybe it's just a desire to do what you want. And you just keep having that desire under the surface there, pumping out behaviors, speech that is coming from a heart of wrong desire. Maybe it's the fear of man. The desire for others' approval and care and concern primarily about what others think of you rather than what God thinks of you, despite what they think of you. Maybe for you it's worry. Worry about what might happen to you, the the what-ifs or the fear that something else might happen uh, to you that you've seen happen to someone else or to yourself in the past. Maybe it's a, a disregard for God's word and you know it, you feel wrong about it and you're like, ah. I can't get into a good rhythm of reading my Bible. Where is my desire? Where's my appetite to read my Bible? Maybe it's a lack of boldness to share your faith with someone else that you know is needing to hear the truth, and yet you pull back because of fear, a lack of boldness. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness for someone else who has hurt you deeply, but you can't find it in yourself to forgive them, to actually release them of their debt to you. Maybe it's anger toward people that you expect more from, and you have an anger, not on the surface, maybe. Maybe it's underneath the surface. Possibly for you, 
churchgoer. It could be self-righteousness. Oh, it feels good to compare myself to others. It feels good to remind myself of how I haven't done the things that others have done and to look at others who are less righteous than me. Maybe it's you who have a, a quick temper or harsh speech toward those closest to you. Maybe it's those of you who have a close relationship, but there's been unfaithfulness. And there's temptations for unfaithfulness to those right around you that you want to care for. Maybe it's depression, that stubborn darkness that internally keeps you down. And you feel like, when will the light ever chase away all this darkness inside? Maybe it's unreconciled relationships. Someone that you just know, we are not good, we're not right. I've chosen to just not think about it anymore. And it hurts. goes with you. You've maybe tried or maybe you've not tried, but it's not right. Maybe for you it's overeating. Maybe for you it's oversleeping. I don't feel bad talking about these things. I see all of these things in my heart. I see Jesus telling me that these things are sourced in our own hearts, not out there in the world. They're in us. And these are things that one day, guess what? One day, can you imagine it? They'll be totally vanished. What will that even look like? What will that even be like internally? I just gave you a little sample. There's so much more. For that to be gone completely, not just for a moment or a day or for a week when we're at camp or or some spiritual high, but for it to be the normal course of life, These things gone, no desire to act on a selfish impulse or something of of sin nature rearing its head and wanting something that we know we shouldn't have, but we want and go after anyway. To relate to God and others rightly with love. Ah, I long for the day. I long for the day. Now, I need to say this, that as we descend into this little verse here in 1 John, John talks a lot about sin. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he has a great deal to say about sin. Uh, What I want to do is uh, just look at one uh, key passage about sin in the middle of this book to help us have this future hope. When sin is gone. Again, moving quickly, but I'm going to give you five elements of our future hope so that you can long for that day when sin will be no more. Let me read 1 John 3 1 to 3. John says this See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Listen to these verses. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. There it is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That first element to consider about our future hope is the assurance of the children of God, the assurance of the children of God. Look at just the beginning of verse two with me. One of my favorite words that comes off the scriptures to me right here is is sitting there right at the, the beginning of this verse, beloved. We are God's children now. 
We are God's children now. He's talking about present tense, and this is a state of fact. This is something that is true of those who are in Christ. And we need to understand that if we're going to talk about a future that is sinless and a glory-filled heaven, that the hope of a sinless heaven is only home to those who are children of God, not to those who are enemies of God, not to those who do not bear his name. They're foreigners to him. They're not welcome there in that place of sinlessness. And in using the word beloved, John reminds us that we are loved and adopted in Christ. You have to remember this, that there is one that God calls beloved, one. And that's his son, his one and only son. Uh, so many people say, oh, we're all sons and daughters of God. And they speak in this kind of, you know, God is creator, we're all created, he loves us equally in value. And in a way that we are created in his image to bear his likeness, yes, but, but he has one son, one eternal son, one son that he looks to with fondness, and one son he refers to as beloved. Matthew 3.17 at Jesus' baptism, when, when God the Son, eternal uh, God uh, in the second person, comes and takes on flesh and dwells among us, and he's baptized at the beginning of his earthly ministry. It says this, Matthew 3.17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, we know this to be from God the Father, because whenever that formula is used, we know that's God the Father speaking. So behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God can and only should say this about his son because he is perfect. He is sinless. He is acceptable. He is pleasing. God the Father, who has a holy standard, is well pleased by one, his son. So if anybody deserves to be called beloved, beloved of God, it is the son. And it would be audacious for us to assume that we too could be considered beloved of God if Christ were not in the picture. But Christ is in the picture. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. Like Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. You've been adopted in the beloved. You know what that means? You've been adopted in the beloved, the only son of the father. Through him, you have been adopted. That means you too now can be referred to as beloved of God. You're like, but that doesn't fit. Hold on. That's the mystery of grace. That somehow Christ in us can qualify us to stand before the Father acceptable. So your sonship, you being a son or daughter of God, and to be able to call him Father, the only way you legally or even in any way practically can refer to him as Father is because of your union with Jesus, the Son. So, do you believe that? Have you, by faith, turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone? If you have, then you are one of those elect, one of those predestined to adoption. You have been adopted to be a part of the family of God. And this is not something that everyone has, and so this is a blessing from God. My middle brother, Casey, and his, his wife, Sarah, they fostered a sweet little girl. They named her Ruth. Her parents were not in, the, um, the situ in, this, in her life and for um, unfortunate reasons, but um, 
it was apparent that Ruth was not Casey and Sarah's daughter, but they treated her as if she was in every way. uh, Not biologically theirs, but they treated her just like they treated their own two daughters. Um, All the way until um, custody was taken back by the mother. And it was beautiful to see adoption, or at least in in this sense, fostering, played out in such a way that this little girl did not have anyone to raise her, to call father, to go run to, to feel safe by, to know she's loved, to be fed, to have clothing and to be cared for in all the ways that are not just physical, but also spiritual, but to know that she could have that. That was a picture. That was a picture played out of our spiritual union to Christ and how, not in a temporary way, but in a permanent way, we've become adopted in Christ so that we can be called beloved. We are God's children now. So adoption gives us assurance. Adoption gives us assurance that we will one day be destined for a big change, and that change is coming. So let's look at the second point. The second major element of our future hope is is in the next phrase. I'm just taking apart phrases of this verse, verse 2. And this is the expectance of the return of Christ. The expectance of the return of Christ. Look what he says next. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Let's pause there for a second. What we will be has not yet appeared. Now, this is very interesting because we're, we're given an implication that what we are as now is not what we will be forever, or we will go through a transformation, a change. Change is coming. Even for those who have been born again, for those who have been adopted There is a future tense to your adoption where the sons of God will be revealed one day as who all are in the household of God. There is a change coming. There is transformation coming. Uh, You have gone through graduations. You have gone through uh, childbirths. You have gone through ceremonies. You have gone through big moments in your life that you would say, "That, that changed me or that made my life so different. Well, you have a very big change coming. And this change surpasses them all. All those other little changes that have happened to you in your life to kind of form and and kind of mold and shape who you are are like the stars in the morning before the sun rises. And when the sun rises, this change that's coming, all the other stars will, will go faint. And that morning star. That, that morning star will be gone, and, and the sun will rise and, and flood into your life a kind of light that will define everything. Day is coming. This day that is coming is the great day of the Lord. It's, it's God's plan from the beginning. It's the hope for God's children, past, present, and future. And what we will be has not yet appeared So we're longing, we're looking forward, we're expecting something. We're expecting something to happen and to change us and and to come for us where we are at. So that means that if you feel down and life is hard and who you are, you're not happy with possibly, or the the hand you've been dealt, the body you've been given, the family you have, the, the place you live, these things pain you. Maybe you're suffering for your faith. You actually do speak out about Christ. You live differently, and you, you have other kids on your team make fun of you. You have other kids in your classroom make fun of you. You have people at work who will stop talking to you 
You have people on your street avoid you because you stand for Christ. And, and you go, this is hard. It's hard. Sometimes I feel alone. I feel lonely. You're only feeling just a, a bit of what Christ felt when he came here too. But no, the, the life of Christ did not end on the cross. It was not all suffering and death. It was suffering. It was death. And it was resurrection. And it was new life. And it was glory, and it was raising to the highest place in the heavens. And so even that, if you are in Christ, you know that this life is filled with suffering and death and hardship. But you know that that's not it. There's something that's going to be revealed someday. A a sun is rising. A day is coming where everything will change. And so you have perspective and you have hope. You have this expectancy of what the Lord has promised for those who are in Christ. Third, you have the appearance of the person of Christ. What are we expecting? What are we looking forward to? Those of us who are children of God, what is our great hope? But we know that when he appears, but we know that when he appears, I'm just going to stop right there. You've got a personal pronoun. You don't just have a great day coming. You have a You have a great savior coming. You have a great rescuer coming. This is the one who had rescued you from the penalty of death, the power of death, and now he's coming to to rid you of the presence of death. And in his appearing, you have the disappearing of sin. This is is a great day. The sun is rising. Darkness has no place to go. It's going to flee. Everything is going to change at his coming. This is our hope. Jesus of Nazareth will be Jesus of the nations. When I was uh, a young kid, I, I, um, we had a house that was on um, a couple of acres and had a long driveway, and it was a gravel rock driveway. And it was fairly long to the street. The house sat back off the street. And uh, we knew that, uh, you know, Dad worked long hours. He, he worked for the power company, um, Southern California Edison is what he worked for. Uh, he was a lineman, and so he went up the poles and worked on the, the poles for electricity to be brought to all the homes and houses around us and in our state, at least Southern California. And he worked through storms. He went out of town. He was on call often. He had to get called out in the middle of the night. He pulled all-nighters uh, early mornings. He was up poles, in the wind, in the rain, handling high voltage, mind you, um, with thousands of people waiting for the power to return. And I loved my mom and my brothers and always have and, and always will, but I had a, a love for my dad that was very unique. And the driveway that we had, the long gravel driveway, made this noise when someone drove home, when someone came up, and it was the crunching of the rocks under the tires. And my ear was kind of tuned to that sound, that whatever I was doing, playing a game or working on homework or watching something, when I heard the crunch, 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 I I jumped up on my feet and I ran to the back door. On my way to the back door, I looked through every mini blind to see, that's dad or is that my mom's walking mate, you know, (laughs) showing up in the afternoon, Uh, you know, and just to to make sure dad, dad is here. And and I bolted there to go greet him and and to ask him about how his day was. I love my dad. I looked forward to when he came home. Because sometimes it would be later. Sometimes he would have stories to tell. And basically every day he lived, it was life or death on the poles. 
And so I loved seeing him and hearing that crunch. And and in a similar way, you have a personal connection to this one who is coming back. Jesus, you know him. And he's coming soon. His return is imminent. There's nothing else that needs to happen between now and his return. And we're waiting. Even the disciples at the very beginning of the book of Acts said, will it be now that you restore your kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know. So he kept them waiting. Guess what we're doing 2,000 years later? Still waiting, longing to listen for the crunch of the rocks. We're still waiting to just spring up and to meet him personally. That's what our anticipation is about. If we are children of God, then we long to see our Savior who has brought us into this great hope. So when he appears, it will be a great day and it will be the culmination of our entire life as a Christian. Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, same, same kind of assurance that's used here. Uh, we, we know that when he appears, we know that when he appears. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's at the point of your conversion, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day. That's the day he is coming. And this whole work of of transformation in our lives to become more like Christ and that true image of God that we're supposed to live reflecting will come. It's a certainty. So when Jesus finally appears, sin in our lives will finally disappear. Will finally disappear. Uh, We have this hope because we know it's like running a race and we're in the middle of the Olympics or we've been watching a lot of uh, uh, Olympians finish their race and come before those judges and those ones to award them with their medals. U.S. has got a couple of medals. That's pretty cool. Side story. Um, But you have this picture of them being awarded gold, silver, bronze medals. And and in a like way, we are coming to uh, the finish line, leaning forward, knowing that this, the end of our race is close. The end of our race is close. And we know that when we cross that line, when he returns and he appears, he is going to place on our head a, a crown that, again, we do not deserve, but it's a reflection of all that he has done and doing in and through us. And we're happy to just take that crown <laughs> and give it back to him at his feet and say, you're worthy. And so we run hard like Olympians. We strive, we, we strain forward that upward call that we're looking forward. He is coming soon. The race will be over. If you think about it, like what we were saying earlier, depression will lift. Anxiety will rest. Worry will calm. Weakness will change to strength. Fears will become courage and the right things. Your indulgence will be, indulgence will be replaced. Your lust will be purified to right desires. Your anger will be released and calmed and channeled into right desires and right expectations. Your own way will be forfeited and you'll be glad to do so. Your addictions and enslavements will be altered because you found the one who is truly beauty and worth all worship and praise. And we can say, behold, he is making all things new. Look at the next phrase, the disappearance of the sin of man. We've been talking about this, so we'll keep brief here, but we shall be like him. 
because we shall see him as he is. This is the disappearance of the sin of man. That phrase, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Here it is. Here's your hope. Here's your promise. What's coming in the future? A savior. What's he coming to do? Save. He's always been this. As he comes, he comes to save. His first coming, he came to save us from the penalty and power of sin. He left his Holy Spirit so we could be set free from the power of sin. He's coming back to save. Not to save us over from the beginning again, but to complete what he began in the beginning. And to make our salvation complete. And the salvation is not just from an unlucky life or from a poor life or salvation to prosperity or something. It's a salvation from sin. The only thing that separates us from God. And he's come to remove that so that we can be one with our God. So just take this from this little text that there is hope that when he appears, sin will disappear. It will have no place to be there with him. I, I loved coming across this quote by F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary. He, he said, referring to the present work of sanctification, so that's the ongoing being made more and more holy into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit through his word, right? Paul says that the people of Christ, beholding his glory and then reflecting as in a mirror, like a reflection, are transfigured into his likeness. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. So one degree of glory to another. You're being changed. Each of you are growing. If progressive assimilation to the likeness of our Lord results from the, their present beholding of him, that's seeing of him, through a glass darkly, almost like you're kind of like leaning in by faith, trying to see him and to behold him face to face, to see him even as he is, without that, reflection that's hard to see through, without that faith in the gospel that I don't have a tangible thing to look at, will result in their being perfectly like him. Do you guys see this? In your sanctification, the more that you look to him, the more that you become like him. When he returns, your sanctification will be complete because you will see him as he is, nothing in between you and him. So you'll see him as he is. You'll behold him. You'll take that wonder in. And you can't do it with this current body you have. 1 Corinthians 15 says you need a new body to behold him. You can't do it this, with this capacity. There's no capacity in this body stricken by sin to be able to take him in like that. So I love that connection that he made between our sanctification and our glorification. We will see him like he is and we'll be changed. It'll happen in an instant. Romans 8.30 kind of points out this change chain. He says those who are whom he predestined, that's before time, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So that's his plan, and that has been his plan from the beginning. There's so much beauty to walk through in the book of Revelation, John also wrote, and, and just, the, just the disappearance of sin. Uh, it's beautiful to see sin disappear through the book of Revelation. In the end of Revelation, you you complete out these last few verses that just show you how different everything will be. Uh, Revelation 21, here's a new heaven and a new earth. Why new? Because the old things are passing away because he's there. He's come. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, no longer fit Now here's a new Jerusalem. This is a place where God is going to dwell with his people forever, perfectly, without anything in between. 
without any mediators, without any, oh, we'll just trust that he's there. I want to, but I don't see him. No, it will be restored like Eden, but better. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. John, write this down. He said that, right? So John's writing these things down and he's giving them to us. And at the end of chapter 21, in verse 22, there's no temple in this city. The temple is the Lord. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light. There's the lamb. The lamp is the lamb. Nations coming in, kings of the earth, bringing their glory into it, giving it to him. And there they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. In this new hope, in this new heaven, in this new reality of a restored Eden, there's no possibility for sin to even be there. Satan is bound. Deception is capped. That's not going to happen anymore. God is present. We see him for as he is. And then we live in this new heaven and new earth, like chapter 22, verse 5 says, Checking, checking, checking. Sorry, three says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be on it and his, and his servants will worship him. The curse will one day be lifted, but we need the Lord to return for us for that to begin. Fifth, the importance of the life of purity. Look at verse three, verse three. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We've been talking about this. Paul's been talking, or sorry, John's been talking about this. You look to him, he alone is pure. So when you look to him, you become pure. That is true for now and when you will see him one day in a complete way. So the Christian life is about looking to Christ. And as you're beholding him more and more, seeing him in his word, believing him with faith that his words are true, you're being changed by the Holy Spirit to represent him, reflect him better and better and better. And one day you will see him for as he is and you will be made perfectly pure. No more impurity in you. Not even a possibility to be impure. You have hope. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So there is a hope. There is a hope. Of purity. Now, it could be kind of hard for us sometimes to stay heavenly minded and think about what is eternal. So, um, to kind of close here, um, I, I've, I've got something underneath here, and it's a, it's a little rope, okay? And this little uh, string rope uh, has a little piece of black tape on it, all right? And this, this stands for something, and this will help you maybe with a little bit of perspective, all right? This little piece of black tape is like the, the length of your life. As I was said earlier, Melanie, 80 years a week. I don't know how long I have to, to live left. Um, but, it's, but it's short, okay? What is white, and maybe I can get someone to help me. Uh, Maggie will do. Come on up here, okay? Um, just help us see in, in kind of, uh, you know, where this, where this heads. So kind of track that for us. Okay, follow that. All right, so our, our tiny little life, and we're thinking about the things that we struggle with, the things that we are trying to put to death, um, the things that we are, are maybe beset with, okay, um, they're starting to seem less significant when we're starting to see, you can start running now, just start chasing that thing. Where's that thing going? 
Okay, yeah, keep going. Follow the string, baby. Keep going. Good job, girl. All right, this thing, does it end there? No, okay, so people are hiding it behind their chairs. Chris found a part of it. Hey, look, there's a piece of eternity there. Okay, keep going. Nice, be careful around the tech. Okay, good. Behind those people, okay, they know what heaven's like. All right, this is going and going and going. Did you guys, did you guys take your eyes off the tape for a second? Yeah, you did. <laughs> you were watching her track eternity. You were watching her chase. There's some knots too, so I didn't buy that, you know, 500 feet of rope. That's kind of expensive. Uh, right, this thing just, just goes and goes and goes, and we need to think about heaven rightly. Thanks, hon. That's good. Um, and, uh, and we need to think about heaven rightly in light of our sin. Here is our struggle with sin. And what do we focus on? The sin. We're like, oh, this is so hard. You know, you're like, okay, just look at what you're supposed to look at. Your future hope. Oh, it will all be made right one day. It will all be taken away someday. It will all be done away with. We're promised that. Where's your focus? Where are your eyes? They need to be in the right place. Don't lose heart. Our outer nature does waste away, but this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, there it is again, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So I'm hoping that this series on sin has helped you a little bit understand your perspective about where you fit with sin, where sin sits in you. You could be at that place where you still have a penalty of sin over your head and you need to turn to Christ away from your own striving to set yourself free, to pay your way out and to look to the one who can and alone Jesus can. Maybe you're in that place where you're like, okay, well, I'm saved, but I'm struggling and it's hard. Well, that's, that's the moment where we need to look to Christ. Again, still looking to Christ for him to set us free from the power of sin and believe that his promises are true that you don't owe sin anything. Sin says, knock, knock, give, give. You say, no, no, right? You go the opposite direction with Christ. And one day, maybe if you need hope, you're discouraged, you're down, you're sick, <laughs> you're struggling. You know people who are, hope is coming. It's coming fast. And in his appearing, there is a great disappearing of sin.